Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to number two in our identity series. Last week, Ben took us through Amago Day, which is just really cool kind of Latin term. Probably not saying it right, but it just even just saying it kind of just makes you feel better. Amago Day, kind of Latin. There's just something about Latin. No wonder they thought it was like a holy language. But anyway, it's not, by the way, same as other languages. But um, it's really interesting about identity, isn't it? So today I'm talking about the S word, selfhood. What do you think I was talking about? <laughs> uh, no, I am talking about sex, and obviously I sent the, the text out there about that. Um, so there are some sort of PG sort of themes and stuff, but by necessity I have to talk about them because I believe that this particular passage in 1 Corinthians, and you might want to turn there now, this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12 to 20, talks a lot about sex. So I could either just ignore it or I could just embrace the fact that it talks about it in surprising ways, really, because what it does is it talks about sex and sexual identity in religious terms, in very religious terms, in probably the most profound, um, deeply rich uh, religious terms that you could probably imagine, really, if you think about it. Anyway, we'll get there soon. So we've been going through our identity session. Uh, Hopefully you're there at 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll read through that shortly together. But obviously that passage culminates in these very famous words that you are not your own. That's Paul writing to Corinthian Christians saying, you are not your own. Now that should be quite shocking, really, to you, particularly in this day and age. Back then it may not have been as shocking because there was such a thing as, as slavery. But when I say to you now in 21st century Toowoomba, you are not your own, it has sort of negative connotations because what it actually means is someone else owns you or something else, something else owns you. It could mean that you're a slave. It would be ignorant to think that slavery still doesn't exist. It actually does exist in full-fledged form. There's about 20 to 30 million slaves across the world today. It's hard to count the exact numbers. 1.2 million children are enslaved through forced labour and exploited in the sexual industry each year. Interestingly, in 1850, the average cost of a slave, if converted in today's value, would be $40,000. The cost of a modern-day slave is $90. So it shows you this despicable, distorted kind of value that's been put upon humanity. But we could talk a whole bunch about that. It's a terrible thing. I invite you to look into it and give to causes that try to fight it. But for um, this idea of not your own... Like I said, it's kind of a shocking thing. It's kind of a thing that says someone else owns you. Our only example really that we know of well is slavery. So what's, you know, what's Paul talking about? Straight away, there should be a little bit of a tension there. Now, even in modern day Australia, there are situations where other people can essentially own you or at least own your destiny to a certain degree. One of them is the military. You go into the military and you'll have many people tell you that I own you, son to a certain extent, they're right. Um, Someone has that kind of military power over you. Say there was a military dictator and he was inhabiting or she was inhabiting with their armed forces Australia. They would essentially own you. Then, of course, there are bosses that can potentially own you to a certain degree. Uh, Mortgages, I reckon, are a form of ownership, aren't they? Because you don't own your own house, the bank does, and that then causes you to have to work hard to make family-type choices, lifestyle choices about what you're going to do. That's a, that's a form of ownership. There's nothing compared to um, slavery. 
but at the same time, it still has that negative connotation, doesn't it? Who wants to be owned by the bank, really? Whichever bank. Um, the mortgage a bank, that a bank has obviously gives amazing power. So um, all those things are kind of, or at least in our own mind, should go, hmm, not your own, what does that mean? And what I want you to do, I guess, is go and investigate 1 Corinthians yourself. It's a massive book. And I tell you what, it's not G-rated. It's probably not even PG-rated. Some of the themes and concepts in there are definitely adult. Okay, Paul's confronting a city. You think Las Vegas and places like that are bad. Corinth, like Las Vegas had nothing on Corinth. Corinth had its own temple to Aphrodite. And that temple had a lot of... Um, prostitution going on so you'd go there and as a religious act you would engage in a sexual practice with a prostitute in that temple this city of Corinth had so washed over and wiped away any sort of constraint that it actually became almost a uh, a swear word to go oh you're Corinthianizing or so if, if you associated anything with Corinth it was like associating it with extreme sexual deviation kids were abused regularly Interestingly, it wasn't called abuse. You know why? Because it was part of society. It was part of culture. It was actually expected that an older man could take a younger man and do whatever he wanted, or a boy and do whatever they wanted. In fact, you know who the first people were that coined the phrase child abuse? It was Christians in cities like Corinth because they said, no, 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 this is not a loving thing. This is not a nice thing. This is abuse of the child. And there was a Greek term for it, child abuse. How fascinating is that? And how sad and what an indictment on today's church, which unfortunately one of the things we're known for is what? Child abuse. Terrible. Terrible. Now, I'm not saying true Christians are that way or even that uh, the modern church necessarily um, is completely evil because of that, because we know it isn't. Um, But what I am saying is that in Corinth, there was terrible things going on the, the most debaucherous cities in the world today had nothing on Corinth, that Corinth was a terrible place. And here was this bunch of Christians that Paul was writing to. You know, some of the things that were going on in that Corinthian church were things like uh, people getting, you can read this through the book and pick up on it, people getting drunk at communion. We just had communion. You imagine if I'm up here now after communion, I've drunk so much because it was a full on meal. I've drunk so much that now I'm actually drunk. And there are other people, some are hungry, some are not, all that kind of thing. We know that uh, some of the Christians were evidently still going to that temple of Aphrodite and they were still engaging in sexual practices at that time uh, with prostitutes in the temple. Uh, We know that there was extreme division. We know that there was a weird kind of um, use of gifts at times, spiritual gifts. It 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 was a crazy church, crazy mixed up church. And so Paul's writing to them and he's writing to them and he's saying, listen in, I want to tell you some things, okay? not your own. Um, Now, what I want to get to eventually is to go, actually, when you think about this often happens with scripture, you'll come to something, you'll go, hey, this is a bit of a shock. This is a bit in your face. I don't really get this. I don't actually maybe even agree with it at face value. Um, When you actually will grapple with it and study it and read into the context and maybe even get a Greek lexicon out and read into the original languages and so forth, all of a sudden you find something beautiful. Still shocking, but it's shockingly beautiful. It's, uh, It's shockingly magnificent, actually this whole passage about not your own. I mean, when Ben gave it to me to uh, reflect on and then to preach from, I was just thinking, oh yeah, not your own. You're bought with a price. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Cool, cool. And I'm going, I better read the context. I'm reading the context. I'm going, oh, whoa. (laughs) Whoa, is that where it is? I mean, I did know it was there, but just seeing it 
with all that kind of stuff that was going on at Corinth and then all the things that Paul says, I'm going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And actually Alan was telling me before that in, what was it, 50 or 60 years of sitting, listening to sermons, he's only ever heard one pastor preach on it ever. And that was in talk pissing up in uh, PNG in, uh, in so Pigeon English and uh, apparently did a great job. I hope to live up to that standard today. So, you know, there's, there's something about this, which I kind of like, you know, it's in your face, not your own. I, it's, I like Paul because he's always kind of in your face. He doesn't hold back. And so I just want you to go with me a little bit. I'm not going to be able to cover everything in this passage. And you might want to later on go back and read around it a little bit. Maybe read First Corinthians this week yourself. It wouldn't take that long. But in, uh, in, any, in any event, what I want to get, get us to at the end is for us to see this shockingly beautiful thing that's actually going on for us as Christians. It's, uh, it's amazing. So let's read together, hey? So 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, and I'll read. Everything is permissible for me. Now note there, that's in pretty much all your Bibles will be in inverted commas, quotes. It's really important to understand that, okay? But not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. Again, that's in inverted commas. But God will do away with both of them. In some Bibles, the inverted commas put to the other side of God will do away with both of them. Talk about that later. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Inverted commas. But God will do away with both of them. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Sorry, I read that again, didn't I? God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? Now think about, just think about these, these claims that Paul is making. <laughs> your body is part of Christ's body. I mean, what rich metaphorical picture is he giving us here? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For the scripture says the two will become flesh, uh, become one flesh. But anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run, in some Bibles it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. That is actually also in inverted commas. And you may not, this is actually going to change some people's understanding of this passage. I had to grapple with this for a while. I don't want to get controversial and everything. And I'll explain why I think that is a comment from the Corinthians, not a comment from Paul later. But for now, notice in my Bible, which I'm using at the moment, is the HCSB, uh, Holman Complete Standard. Standard. I don't know. Anyway, HCSB. I'll put it up online anyway. Um, I'm using that at the moment because uh, I think it has a better interpretation here. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So what I'm saying there in verse 18 is every sin a person can commit is outside the body that's inverted commas that's a statement and then paul is now responding to that statement by saying on the contrary the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have from god you are not your own for you were bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body now it would be nice if the bible in some ways it would be nice it would also be very empty and vapid if the Bible was just nice, glib statements like we tend to remember the Bible, like the Bible, the, the little glib statement we'd like to remember here is you're not your own, you're bought with a price, glorify God in your body. 
and we don't see the context that it's actually built into and the context that it emerges from. It's pretty kind of gritty and in your face, isn't it? Don't you reckon? Or is it just me? <laughs> it's in your face, isn't it? So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but there's something you should know literarily. Okay, so there's a literary structure to this passage, and I've already alluded to it, and what I've done here is I've created a little slide to help you see it. So that's the passage we just read. It's the passage of 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, and the highlights are showing wherever there's a statement in inverted commas, just about every commentator will tell you that the statement in inverted commas is a statement that Paul is relaying from the Corinthian church. So it's the Corinthian church uh, who is saying, or certain people who are saying, everything is permissible for me, and then he's responding to it. So wherever you see inverted commas up there, you will see these statements from, not from Paul, but from the Corinthian church. But Paul is using them as a bit of an anchor to go, hey, this is what you said, now this is what I want to say in response. And it's actually quite surprising what he says in response. It's probably not what we would say. So up there you can see, and I'll just read them to you, everything is permissible for me, that's from the Corinthian church. So we've, uh, he says that, he repeats that twice. The next one is food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will do away with both of them. So that's also a statement from the Corinthian church. And you can probably see a bit of a theme developing here, hopefully, in terms of what their mindset is, what their worldview is about their bodies. And then finally, every sin a person can commit is outside the body. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. Now that's down in uh, verse 18. I'll talk more about that later. So we've got, this, we've got the Corinthian church. We've got a pretty good idea now of what they're saying about their bodies, about sex. Basically saying everything is permissible for me. I'm free in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I've been set free. The next thing is food for the stomach, stomach food. Well, you know how your stomach kind of desires food? That's just a natural desire. So just like you naturally desire sexual things, go for it. It's not really a spiritual thing. It's just your body. It's just a natural function in your body. What you do sexually has no real impact on your spiritual life. And that's why that final statement, and you'll see hopefully later on when you study it yourself, you'll see it actually fits in much better with the flow of the whole passage as being from the Corinthian church, not from Paul. Every sin a person can commit is outside the body. Now, in some of your versions, it's saying every other sin. There's no other in the Greek. You've got interpretations that say other, but there is no other in the Greek. Now, I don't want everyone's looking down now to check me. If you do that, you won't hear anything I say next and tell me. I tell you, it gets pretty exciting in the next little bit. But I really want you to go and look at that later, okay, and study it. Get out of Greek lexicon. You'll see there is no other there. And I know that therefore changes probably the meaning that you've had maybe most of your life, which is that somehow sexual sin is worse because you're sinning against your own body than other types of sin. So I'm asking you to consider that there might be a different interpretation. One is actually more coherent with the whole body, uh, with the whole body of the text. That was a pun. I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> okay, so you with me? So just please don't get too distracted. I wanted to be honest with you, okay, and I'll get you there in a minute. But this is, you essentially see what the Corinthian church is saying. It's all about the body, guys. Whatever you do with your body, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just sex. It has no real impact on your spiritual life. Now, this is not a surprising thing, really. We think there are kind of new things going on in the world in terms of sexual liberation, so-called, sexual freedom, so-called. No, not at all. Everything is permissible for me. I'm just going to put some quotes out there, see if you can guess who they're from. 
If you don't encourage healthy sexual expression in public, you get unhealthy sexual expression in private. If you attempt to suppress sex in books, magazines, movies, and even everyday conversation, you aren't helping to make sex more private, just more hidden. You're keeping sex in the dark. What we try to do is turn on the light. So basically this person is saying any type of sexual expression goes as long as you're not hurting anyone else. And if you try and repress it, well, that just turns into very ugly things. Now, I'll make a point. I think there are certain types of sexual repression that have gone on. And some of the church fathers started it with Augustine, as an example, who believed that sex, even in marriage, was just something you kind of had to do, had to get through in order to produce children. Otherwise, we're all going to be you know, wiped out, essentially. We wouldn't actually be able to um, continue to exist. So he said, all right, just get, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but many church fathers thought that sex in itself was evil. I wish they'd read the Song of Solomon and I wish they'd read Genesis properly when you've got two grown adults running around together enjoying this garden and they're naked and I'm sure they're enjoying other things. And it's not like God is going, that is terrible. What have they done? That is not what I expected. You know, that is not what's happening. Sex is a beautiful thing. That intimacy of a, a human female body coming together with a human male body they're perfectly um, matched they come together in intimacy there's a beautiful thing that happens and there's not only that there's also almost like a soulic spiritual oneness in that you know anyone here anyone here can go and pay some money and i told this is still pg rated but anyone here can go and pay some money right now and go to a certain place in town and enjoy to a certain extent physical sex but let me tell you what you won't enjoy. You will not enjoy the spiritual intimacy of a lifelong partner within the bounds of marriage. Red hot monogamy, as some people have called it. You won't enjoy that. It'll just be physical. It'll be done. And then you'll be lonely again. Sometimes I have this picture with sex of like chocolate cake. Well, it's not sometimes. It came to me before, actually. So, you know, you got your chocolate cake. It's, who, 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 who here doesn't like chocolate cake? Because this metaphor won't work for it. Great. What kind of cake do you like? <laughs> okay, this is sugar-free chocolate cake. It's the, it's the holy grail of chocolate cake. We finally found it for Andrew and my wife. It's got cacao in it. Um, what do you like? Oh, don't worry. Do you, like, you must like some cake. Let's just say it's cake. I do it's, like a lot of cake, but not, I don't like the taste of the chocolate in cake. Oh, okay, right. So it's cake. It's sugar-free. It's nice. I've always just lost most of the audience now. Um, but you see it there, right? And all of a sudden, you go, hmm, that's nice cake. I'm going to eat that. And you just kind of get your face and you go, and you just, and it's up your nostrils, it's in your eyes, and all, you know, it's all through your eyes. Now, you're just seeing the rest of the world now with kind of chocolate-coloured, chocolate-kind-of-tinted eyes. Like, it's just, oh, yes, it's all about the chocolate cake now. I love the chocolate cake. And someone's saying, well, wouldn't you like to be a pilot and kind of, you know, fly up? No, I want my chocolate cake. Um, or wouldn't, no, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to maybe uh, enjoy, I don't know, being a politician or something? No, 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 no. My identity is this chocolate cake. It is, it is who I am. I must have more chocolate cake and I won't have you telling me otherwise. You know what I'm saying? Like the chocolate cake, sexual expression, all of a sudden begins to govern and dominate your identity. Now this, let's, anyway, I've got a little bit off tangent there, but that's sort of my little picture of sexual expression. Here's another quote from this guy. You may have already guessed. Sex is the driving force on the planet. We should embrace it. The chocolate cake is the driving force. Stop repressing people. Let them have their chocolate cake. Let them do whatever they want with their chocolate cake. We should embrace 
sex as the driving force on the planet, not see it as the enemy. Now, as I said to you, I think sex is a beautiful thing. I think it's a wonderful thing within marriage. But the sexual force, the sexual impulse, really? So what this person is doing, guys, is he is putting upon you an identity. He is saying, you know what? All of you are just driven by sex. Now, I know all of you, and I know that sometimes you might struggle with that in certain areas, um, but that is not who you are. <laughs> like, and even those that are enjoying healthy sexual expression within their marriage, uh, you know, the healthiest of marriages, I think I've said this before, and I don't want to get too kind of, I don't know, in your face with it, but even if you're enjoying sex, say, two or three times a week, right? And you are, you're loving it, and it's, it's all the things I described before, what is that in terms of percentage per week, in terms of the total amount of time in a week, in seven days? It's, what, it's like, it's 0.05%. And you're telling me that that's driving the whole world. No. But what this person is trying to do is they're trying to say that is your identity. A bit like the Corinthians who are saying, you know what, just let those natural desires drive you. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. Then he also says this, beauty. Now this, I, this person is probably one of the most influential people on the planet. And I'll tell you why in a minute. Beauty is everywhere, on the camp- campus, in the office, living next door, nice girls like sex too. It's a natural part of life. Don't be ashamed of it. So again, the idea there is it's just, you know, I guess there's nothing spiritual about it. It's just a natural function of the body. A bit like the Corinthians saying, well, you know, sin's really a spiritual thing. It's outside the body. It's not really part of your bodily experience as such. So it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. Just do whatever. Just do what your body naturally want. Now, these are all claims of identity. These are statements saying that you are a sex object and they come clashing full frontal face first into God's claim of identity on you as a Margot Day. Because he has given you sex as something you can do, something you can enjoy. It brings about children, etc., etc. But that's not your sole identity. And yes, he has made us male and female, made us different. And in his image, as we come together and so forth, together we bear a Margot Day. But you're not just a a sex object. How dare this person? You know, this same guy also quoted and said this, and now you'll probably guess who it is. The notion that Playboy turns women into sex objects is ridiculous. Women are sex objects. Now, when I say stuff like that, I start to get a bit passionate. I don't actually want you getting angry at this person. I just want you to pray for him, okay? Well, actually, you can't anymore. He's a um, bit late for that, perhaps. But at least pray for those people that have bought into this because it is incredibly destructive. Uh, if women weren't sex objects, this is still him talking, there wouldn't be another generation. It's the attraction between the sexes that makes the world go around that's why women wear lipstick and short skirts. Um, so there's much time we could spend on that. And all his statements, he's actually quite an intelligent guy. I'm talking about Hugh Hefner. And he actually engaged many different times with, with the church and so forth. And they would have a to and fro and talk back and forth. He's actually a very intelligent guy. And I'm not underestimating his intelligence by any means. Um, so most of his statements will always have some truth and some disproportionate falsehood built in. Now, you want to be a seeker of truth, don't you? 
I mean, everybody want, should be seeking truth. We should be wanting to assimilate and enjoy as much truth in our lives as possible and reject as much falsehood as possible, right? So what I'm asking you to do whenever you hear me preach or hear anyone else preach is be a truth seeker, seeking for truth yourself. And same, same with these kind of comments that come out, which then produced Playboy magazine, which then produced the multi-billion dollar porn industry, which then produced an image of women, which we now live with all around us. Um, I want you to test it and see. And hopefully already you can see where I stand on it, but I ask you to test it yourself. But again, um, what I think of, what I think of when I think of uh, women that are caught up in this industry, when I think about us as people that now have been socialised in a certain way by this industry in many subtle ways that you may not even aware, I don't think of freedom at all. This is what I think of. I think of you are in bondage. You're in bondage to the chocolate cake. You can't even see the world properly anymore. You just think it's all about the chocolate cake. I mean, imagine, and many people have said this in the past, an, an alien coming to our planet and just watching TV for a while. You go, oh man, you guys, it's all about the sex, isn't it? You know, but it's not. But once you got past Coca-Cola and McDonald's ads and all that stuff, like, it's not. Now, we know our experience as people, that's not our identity. And I reject that identity that you, Hefner, and everyone like that would want to put on me. That is not my governing identity. It is a part of who I am. It's a rich part of who I am. It should be a rich part of who you are. Um, but it's not the governing identity. And actually, really, if that is the governing identity, then you are not your own. You are owned. You are owned by that impulse. You are not free to enjoy other things. You're only free, as Teen Challenge talks about, to basically end up in a life-controlling situation. So this sex and other things become, they call them life-controlling substances, you know, drugs, alcohol, become life-controlling substances. They now dominate your life. They now become your identity. You're no longer potentially pilot, politician, uh, you know, all the other jobs you can do, father, son, etc. You're now a druggie. You're now an addict. That's your identity. That's what we're invited to do here, and we reject that. That's not our identity. You know, Hugh Hefner said, you're primarily a a sex object to women, the object of men like Hugh Hefner, who reportedly would clean up his Playboy mansion when his young daughter Christine came over, get rid of all the kinky stuff kind of stuff, because he was happy for it to go out there into the public, but he didn't want his own daughter being a part of it. She would later on take over some of the business and help sell that stuff. He reportedly made billions off that porn industry. Do you know that industry releases 700 films every month? Do you know how many Hollywood releases on average? 400 every year. Uh, the domain name business.com recently sold for a record-breaking 7.5 million. So, you know, you can get domain names, hold them, sell them. Business.com, pretty important name. Guess what sex.com is valued at? $65 million. So if you wanted to own that domain name, you've got to fork up $65 million. The dominating dictatorial identity that this kind of concept wants to put on us. Do you know that the porn industry online is accessed by more visitors every month than Netflix, Amazon and Twitter combined? Think about it. I mean, who's, who's got Netflix? Who enjoys watching Netflix? Who's on Twitter? Who visits Amazon? Man, what are you guys doing? 
Right, right. But think about that for a moment. So Netflix, for those that may not know, is a uh, streaming service which brings movies and TVs. And there are many true, noble, right shows on there that really, I think, emphasise good themes. And then there's a whole bunch of rubbish. But putting that aside for the moment, think through this. So on Netflix, how many times do you see women portrayed in a certain way? So you might see them as a detective. You might see them as a politician. You might see them as a pilot. You might see them as all the things that women can do and do so well, just as well as men. But what does the porn industry see you as? Again, sexualized, and not only sexualized in a normal way, but over and above, and all the statistics show this, that in deviant ways, and many times, in most times, abusive kind of ways. So I'd say to you, Hefner, like, well, how's it all worked out for us, mate? Because domestic violence has gone down. Thank you. Uh, I'm now being facetious and satirical. Domestic violence has gone down. No. You know, the way we see women has gone, uh, you know, into a much more sort of honoured way, not in general. Uh, The gender pay gap, that was on the news, wasn't it, recently? Well, that's closed because we obviously value women in a different way than just how they look. No, no, no. It hasn't really worked out that well because people are now in bondage and instead of seeing women as a daughter, a sister, a wife, a woman, a CEO, a politician, scientist, doctor, a pilot, etc., they're outweighed by men viewing them, all these images are outweighed by men viewing them as sexualized anatomy, essentially. And strangely enough, if we as men are doing that, well, what's our identity? What is it, men? We're consumers. We're consumers of that picture. What does that make us? You know, we think Hugh Hefner is the one to blame. He just put something out there. The one to blame is the ones that buy support. Now, going to be a bit pastoral. A porn addiction is a difficult thing to break. You need help. You need to be out and out about it. And if I stand before you now and think that all of you are completely clean from that and that I'm never going to be tempted by it, I'm just being ridiculous because it is everywhere. It's just a click away. You know the sad thing? I've got my sermon up here. I can click this thing three times probably or four and I can be on a porn site. You know, there are some pastors out there who self-proclaim have actually been so addicted to porn that they would preach in the morning at a big church. They'd go backstage, surf porn, then come out uh, for the next sermon and preach their sermon. You know, that, and I don't get angry about it. I, I I just feel sad. I just feel sorry. You know, I'm sorry, Gabby and Johanna and Becky and Carrie and you know, all the women in this church, I'm sorry that you and many other daughters like you now have dictatorially superimposed over you the image of sex object. That plays out in a whole bunch of ways. Why do you think our newsreaders, as they get older, put out female? Because sexually they're seen for their beauty, not for their skill as a newsreader or a reporter. You know, I've heard older women talk about how in their younger days people always paid attention to them and as they get older and older, they're just forgotten. People don't pay attention to it. What do you think that is? It's, it's the Hugh Hefner, uh, the, the concept playing itself out where older women, well, they're not that sexually attractive necessarily anymore, so you're not valued anymore. Sorry. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry that there's a, there's a high probability that the future husbands, my future son-in-laws, are already struggling with this. You know, struggling to identify to, to women in a different way than Hugh Hefner would like them to identify. 
And I'm sorry that there's a high probability that as you age and your physical beauty fades, you'll be valued less on your very beautiful daughters like your mother. And I'm sorry that there are other precious daughters that in partnerships with, um, you know, whether it's marriage or de facto or whatever, are being beaten up, raped, asked to do sexual things that are just so deviant because their husbands or their partners have seen it online and they want to try it. It's just sex. It's just, just the body, the natural functioning of the body. What a load of BS. I wonder what God thinks of his Imago day of, of men and women you know, coming together. And now this. Hugh Hefner's disciples, of which there are millions, billions maybe. That's why I say I believe he is the most influential man on the planet in terms of the way he has influenced our perception of women. I just say God help us all, literally. God help us all because we are no longer our own at all. So if you think that you're already your own, you're you're deluded. You're not. You are every day swept along, shaped by people like Hugh Hefner on your seven to eight hours on average screen time, which has many ads, which many, you know, 30, 40 years ago would have been considered soft porn. And all the other images, it's either sexualized or violence. Violence is something else we could talk about. And I know, you know, I know I'm sounding like a fundamentalist nerd, but I'm telling you that you are missing out if you think that this is freedom. You've just got chocolate all over your face. It's up your nostrils. It's in your eyes. It tastes kind of good for a while, but after a while, that stuff's going to rot. That's not going to give you long-term satisfaction. That is sexuality gone rogue, gone cancerous. A cancerous thing is something that takes over, continues to grow and grow and grow and takes over everything else until it is the only thing. And then what happens? The very thing that it took over, it dies. And then the cancer itself dies. It's the same kind of thing with um, anything that will dominate, whether it's sexuality or whether it's drugs or anything, it'll just be cancer, it'll continue to take over. It's a cannibal identity. It continues to cannibalize itself on other identities. Even the same-sex debate and marriage debate, it's actually about identity. And the biggest concern for me is not so much about the implications of same-sex marriage for society as a whole, it's actually the implications for you as an individual, Amago Day, who is now saying my sexual identity and my, homos- my, my homosexual drive and my homosexual love for other men, is that, that is all I am. And I just feel that sad because the gay movement was built on the rainbow of diversity and of colour. That's how God made you. He didn't just make you to be a sexual being. He made you to be a, a poetical being, a, 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 a singing being, a loving being, a, a, a managing, technical, scientific being made in his image with all the colour that he has. And all of a sudden, no, it's just about my sexuality. It's not. And I know these are complex things and I feel for you. And I, Oh man, I wish I could give you a hug. Because <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it just must hurt you and, and hurt other people. And Anyway, I didn't mean to go off on that kind of tangent. So I just wanted to set up the rest of the sermon with Hugh Hefner, meet Paul of Tarsus and engage in what Hugh would say to Paul and what Paul would say to Hugh. Um, So Hugh, meet the Holy Spirit-inspired, enlightened, impassioned Paul of Tarsus. 
right? And we just want to talk through some, some, some things that Paul doesn't say, first of all. Now, remember what I said about Corinth? It was full of Playboy mansions, right? It was full of all sorts of sexual deviation, deviant behavior, terrible things. Like I said, it even had a swear word that was named after itself to indicate you're a devo, you're a deviant. Um, and now you've got the uh, Corinthians saying everything's permissible, it's just sex, it's just the natural desires of the bodies. So notice what Paul doesn't say. Now, I want, I want you to notice what he doesn't say because these are often things that we say. This is things that often Christians say, okay? First of all, he doesn't quote the law at them. He could have. He could have found every single Old Testament law that actually pertains to sexuality and just slammed them with it. Doesn't do that. Now, I'm not saying they don't have their place. They actually do. But if you start there, if you don't actually lead with the gospel, then what's that? That's legalism. He doesn't send them to the local bookshop to get a 10-step plan on how to break the, sawn, the, the, sorry, the porn and sex addiction cycle. That might have its place, but Paul doesn't start there. He doesn't set up accountability groups. Again, they would have their place, but Paul doesn't start there. He doesn't gather statistics and research that show all the detrimental effects of such a lifestyle, a sexually deviant, outside of marriage lifestyle in terms of sex. So he, doesn't, he, he could have done that. He doesn't threaten them with hell. Elsewhere he talks about um, what, actually, what actually makes you uh, ineligible for the kingdom, but it's mixed in with Gossip, murder, backbiting, um, things that we might do, not murder, but the gossip stuff, it's all mixed in there. So he doesn't start with that. Instead, he slowly introduces them to this, what I said before was this shockingly beautiful thing, this shockingly magnificent thing. And it's actually almost cringy when you think about it, what he's doing here. So let's see what he does actually say. So 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. Everything is permissible for me, but I'll not be brought under the control of anything. So if Paul was talking to Hugh, he would say, Listen, Hugh, you're a smart guy. So you're saying essentially everything's permissible in terms of sex as long as you don't hurt anyone else. But that doesn't mean, mate, that you can't actually end up being controlled by these desires. That doesn't mean, mate, that you, you know, the, the, the chocolate cake thing is just all about the chocolate cake now. That doesn't mean that can't happen. So at the very least, it's nice to say, okay, permissible to do anything, but what if you get brought under control of these things? What if it becomes a life-controlling substance? That Paul starts there. Then 13, verse 13, for food for the stomach and stomach for the food. God will do away with both of them. Okay. That's the statement from the Corinthians. And then Paul says, but the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. I don't know if you realize how staggering this is. I mean, look, if you said to someone today who was struggling in some sort of sexually deviant behavior or some sort of um, you know, sexual addiction, you said, listen, listen, your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. You'd be like, What? That's just dumb. You know, look, it's just so big. Now, what I love about this, Paul doesn't say uh, the body is not for sexuality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body if you shape up. He just says 
the Lord is for the body. So the second thing that Paul would say to Hugh is, listen, mate, this all comes back to God. If you believe there is a supreme being, if you believe there is a God of the cosmos who created human bodies for certain types of sexual pleasure within certain types of constraint, and you'll lose a whole bunch of other things if you don't stay within those constraints, which are nice constraints. It's kind of like the robot rowing boat out in the middle of a storm-tossed ocean. The constraint of the, uh, of the boat, you stay inside it, you don't jump out of it. That kind of constraint, uh, it's a good constraint. It's, it's one that's for your benefit so you can really enjoy what sex is meant to be. Listen, if you don't, if you don't believe there's a God, then fine. Like, it makes no difference because you're just an animal. You're just, and that's essentially that identity is animalistic urges. Just do it. In fact, you know, if you want to go and do a poo right now, just do it. Don't go to the toilet. Do it right now. Do it in your pants. You'll stink everything up. But just do that because, hey, everything's permissible. Just a body. No, there's like consequences to that. Hey, we're not just animals. We're not just impulse um, addicts. We, we, can actually, <laughs> we can actually control our impulses. Surprise, surprise. We can actually choose to engage in a sexual activity or not. We can actually choose to engage within sexual activity within marriage or we can choose to wait for that. And I feel for you guys and women that are waiting for that. I know it's hard, but please continue to wait. Continue to wait. Continue to do the right thing. You're not being repressed. You're doing what a good and holy God actually is asking you to do. And, I, and, and Paul would also say to, um, to you, and if this God of the cosmos became a man, now I know, I know, Hugh, you just think all religions are mythical and so forth, but just bear with me for the sake of the argument. If he became a man and he died for you and he took the, the nails for you, okay, you're saying to me, I don't believe in that. Okay, that's fine. But you haven't gone to the whole part of the universe, every part to find out whether there is no God. So just bear with me because you, you don't really know for sure. This could actually be true. Okay, but if that's the case, well, wouldn't you want to listen to what he's saying? Like, wouldn't it change everything about your ideas on sexuality, just like it should change everything about us and our ideas on everything else? That's what, that's what Paul's saying here to the Corinthians. He's saying, okay, let's start with God. What does God think? What has God done? And he says a surprising thing because you'd expect him to say, God says, stop doing that or you'll go blind. <laughs> you know, people are laughing because... I won't say who said that originally, but it was made a lot of fun of for, for a whole bunch of different reasons. But if, if God has died for us, if God loves us, if God has made us, like, everything changes. Everything changes. And what Paul says is, I want you to know some things about God in terms of your sexuality. And what he's saying is, your governing identity, we're back to Imago Day, is not sex, it's God. Your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And Hugh, this could be for you as well. This could be for your disciples. This could be something beautiful, truly beautiful, truly magnificent. That, that absence in your heart that's been filled with sexual things, which actually isn't even satisfying those things anymore, that was designed to be filled by God and God himself. The body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Just, just... Just hold that thought for a moment, but here's some more. For people who are Christians, people who are trusting, following, hoping, loving in Jesus, don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So we think of Christ's body as it was resurrected, that super body. He could eat, he could touch, he could hug, he could, could just tr- had some sort of transportation thing going on, he could teleport. 
Uh, he had all these amazing things. Now, what we're told is that our body, the, the link with him and, and our bodies, these old bodies that are kind of deteriorating even now, they're actually one with his body. And one day they're going to be resurrected like his body. So what you do with your body now actually counts because your body now is in some way, albeit renovated radically and transformed, is going to be the body that you have in heaven. It's not just going to disappear. Whatever molecules he has to extract from the four winds, he's going to bring back together and your body is somehow inextricably, metaphorically, in oneness with Christ's body already. This is amazing stuff. Your body is a sanctuary, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You are not your own. Now, this is a pure, lovely, not your own, not a in bondage, trapped, slave-like, not your own. Do you know why? You're not your own because God's given himself to you. <laughs> it's like marriage. You know, like with my wife, I, I really, I want to give myself to her because I love her and I know that she loves me. So when we say you're not your own, it's because the Lord has given himself to you. He's given himself to you on the cross. He's given himself to you in this Holy Spirit union in, in Christ kind of way. You know, how many times through the Bible are we told in Christ, in Christ, you are in Christ. It, it's a beautiful oneness. And you know, you're still yourself, just like in marriage. I'm still me. I'm still Adrian. But I'm so much more with my wife. And Carrie, she's still herself. But she's also so much more because we complement one another, our weaknesses and our strengths. Sometimes we're just irritated with each other, you know. You can ask the girls about that. But I know, <laughs> but I know in the main, it's a beautiful thing. And we're told in Ephesians, that's a picture. And here's the thing. I just, actually, I'm going to show you. I didn't intend to put this up, but I'm going to show you. I'm going to put two pictures up. Here's one. These were actually hidden slides, Okay. What do you see there? You see two wedding dresses. So here's another issue, okay? And here's a, and again, I want to be really sensitive to this as much as I can, but there are two wedding dresses. The Christian idea of marriage is not two wedding dresses or two suits, black suits coming together. What do you notice? Well, just tell me, what, what's, the over, what's the image that you see there when I put that up? What, what's the theme? What's, what comes to your mind when I put two wedding dresses next together and two suits next together? Hmm? Okay. Sameness. Isn't this incredible? Sameness. Like God has intended unity in diversity. So he says to a woman who is plumb differently, like different anatomy, and he says to a man who is also plumb different, as a living metaphor, you're going to come together and you're going to match. You're going to match beautifully, but you're going to be so different. You are going to be a university. You are going to be unity in diversity. That's why when we see, depending on what they're wearing and what cultures and so forth, we see a husband and a wife come together, we see diversity. We see an expression of our God who is incredibly diverse and has come together with his church. And I just find that startling that it's, it's all of a sudden, no, now it's about the sameness. It's the, there's something about that I think we should all consider, whether we are heterosexual or we have that homosexual kind of um, desire going on within us. I think we should really consider that. And you know what? I just want to tell you that if you struggle with that kind of desire, God loves you. He loves you just as much as me, my rich-blooded heterosexual, whatever that means. You know, he died for you. And he doesn't, whatever, let's talk about and debate about 
you know, the, 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 where this, sexu- this kind of expression of sexuality can take us. But let's never forget that you are a son and a daughter of God. He created you. You are Amago Dei. And he loves you and he doesn't want you to be governed by one thing. Just, just, just to consider that for a moment. You are not your own. You are not your own because the Lord has given himself to you. You are not an object. You are not your sexuality alone. Your body is going to be... This is, what, this is, this is a summative statement from this passage. You are for the Lord and the Lord is for you. Your body, verse 14, is going to be wonderfully raised just as Christ's body was raised. Verse 15, your bodies are mysteriously and wonderfully part of Christ's body. Verse 17, anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Well, you think about the best, most magnificent person you know. Would they want to marry you? Would they want to be one with you? And yet God, who is the most magnificent being in all of the universe, says, I want to be with you in such a way that it's almost like a marriage relationship. The way I can be open with Kerry, the way I can just be myself. I don't have to wear any masks. That's how God wants to be with us. And so Paul then says in verse 17, what happens to your oneness with Christ if you choose to become one with a prostitute, Corinthian church? Think about it. In a marriage, there's only room for one oneness. Think about it. I don't want to go into all the detail, but it only, there's only room for one oneness, unless it is deviant and then it doesn't work anyway. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to get too, maybe I'm getting towards M-rated now. Do you know what I'm trying to say? There is only room for one oneness. And so too in our spiritual lives, God wants that marriage picture to go, you know what, in the same way, there's only room for one oneness as your spiritual oneness with Christ goes. There is no room for any other. And it is inextricably infused into your body. If you then go and become one with a prostitute, you not only dishonor her, Amargo Day, you dishonor your own. And more than that, there's not room for two. That's not saying there can't be redemption, there can't be forgiveness, but you can't keep doing that, guys. He's an amazing sexual counselor, isn't he? This is not the kind of stuff you'd expect. Just listen and let these words soak deep in your souls as I finish, okay? This is your identity. So it's not that perverted sexualness of Hugh Hefner and others. It's this from John 14. In that day, you'll know, this is after Jesus goes to the cross, that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. There's that oneness again. Through the Holy Spirit. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The command all through John is to believe and to trust in God. Can you trust him that he's going to lead you out of your porn addiction? Can, he tr- can you trust him? Because you're going to have to, because you won't do it yourself. Can you trust him that he's going to lead you out of this distorted view of women? Can you trust him that he will um, lead you through, through forgiveness, redemption, etc., to getting a, a, a woman or a, a man in, 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 in marriage? That's his commandment. His commandment all through John is believe, believe, trust, believe. So trusting is holding on to him, asking him to forgive, asking him to change, doing whatever it has. Maybe it is accountability groups and stuff like that. But it begins with repentance, as Alan said. 
Jesus also says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and we will make our home with him. And we finish off now. Don't you know, back in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. What price? You know, don't you? The price of the cross. Ben's going to take us through this next week. That's a large price. It's very costly, very traumatic for God to go through that. Do you know what that says to me? He says that he loves you so much that he would rather die than lose you. Now that's someone I can give myself to. That's someone I can happily say, not my own. Not my own, belong to him. And he says to me, Adrian, I'm not my own. I've given myself to you. This is our God. That's why he's so glorious. Because he is glorious as he gives himself to us. Anyway, I know some of that stuff is pretty raw. There's a few people looking a bit uncomfortable. Um, I, I guess I'll just finish by praying. And look, hey, we're all family here. You don't agree with some of the stuff, that's fine. Maybe I went too far. Maybe I didn't go far enough. But I just want you to consider your sexual identity. Okay? It's not actually the governing identity. It's only part of who you are. You are Amago Day. You are for the Lord. The Lord is for you. And if there's anyone here who feels like they're struggling sexually in one way or another, it might be within marriage, then get some help. Go see a counsellor. Talk to trusted brothers and sisters. It might be outside of marriage. It might be with the images and some of this stuff might have really come home to roost in a sense. And I just, again, get some help. Get some help from brothers. You're not going to get condemned. What you're going to find is, hey, we, we just want to help you through this. If this is a journey that you're on, then let us help you. And if there's going to be trip, stumble, fall in the future, that's okay because the Lord is for you. And if you'll trust him, then he's going to get you through it. And even if you don't trust him, he's a good shepherd. He'll come for you and he'll keep coming for you because he would much rather die than lose you to a false identity. He would much rather die than allow you to be the victim of identity theft. Like that finish? (laughs) All right, I'm going to pray. Oh, Father, these are kind of really weighty words in many ways. And Lord, I don't know, I just, I just pray that there would be love for all those that struggle through, not just in this church, but in, in our city that struggle with different ideas of sexual identity. Oh, Lord, would you just reveal yourself to them, even this day, in, in a magnificent way, the self-giving God of the cross, who is also the God of the cosmos, who loves them, who died for them. O oh Lord, please bring light and hope to them. Bring light and hope to all of us and to our country and to our nation, which is really, I don't care about the brand, I just care about the people, which is really just all the people. Lord, we pray for them that, Lord, there would be a fresh understanding of who you are. Help us in our workplaces to love, to serve, to stand firm when we need to, but at the same time to be given opportunities to love sacrificially. So help us, Lord. And if persecution must come, then may we bear it well as you did in Jesus' name. Amen.